Today's text is from John 16, 33, 17-1, and verses 17, verses 13 through 24. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. It is great to be with you. I bring greetings from London, our church there, and not only greetings, but gratitude. Our church in London was planted six years ago, and humanly speaking, our church would not be where it is, it might not even exist, without the support and the prayer of Reality San Francisco. So thank you. You may not even realize, but you are truly part of the work that God is doing there. So thank you. It's a privilege to be here to share with you God's word today. I'm thankful for the warm hospitality I've received and also for Pastor Dave, the elders, the leaders of the church for the privilege to preach. So please pray with me as we prepare to look at this passage. Gracious God, use my words to accomplish your purposes today and glorify your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is often hard and sometimes unspeakably so. Most days, there is some challenge that you're navigating. And on some days, the hardship and the grief is overwhelming, even suffocating. Going through hard stuff impacts your faith, 
Sometimes suffering draws people closer to God. Sometimes suffering, and especially chronic suffering, makes God feel really far away. Talking about the loneliness that you can't shake no matter how much you put yourself out there and try to make friends. That illness that is always present, it's hard to live with, but people have stopped asking about, caring about, because you were diagnosed so long ago. It's that ongoing experience of sorrow that now hits you in unexpected waves for a person that you loved but is gone. C.S. Lewis, in his haunting memoir titled Grief Observed, wrote about what it was like to watch his wife die of cancer and specifically reflecting on what it was like for his faith, what it was like for his confidence in God. And he gave voice to something that I've experienced personally and I've also seen time and time again as a pastor. He wrote this, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms of suffering on your spiritual life. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. Why is he so ever present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent to help in our time of trouble? A little bit later, Lewis, as he was reflecting on what that experience meant for his belief, said this, It's not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now that's an honest and a really raw account of what suffering can do to your faith and your spirituality. As we walk through the troubles that we face in this world, my question today is the same one that Lewis asked. Where is Jesus? And what is he doing? I mean, right now, where is Jesus and what is he doing? Maybe this is your first time ever coming to a church. You picked a really good Sunday to be here because (laughs) Jesus is the object of Christian faith. And so a really important and even basic question is, what is he doing right now? And for others of you, you've been at church for a while. You know the story. You know Jesus died on a cross. You know he rose from the dead. You know that one day he's gonna come back. But what's he doing at this moment? Like, what is Jesus doing right now? And the answer the Bible gives us, Jesus is praying for you. Right now, at this moment, Jesus is praying for his church. He's praying for his people. He's praying for you. One of the things that Christians say to each other a lot is, I'm praying for you, or I'll be praying for you. Sometimes we say that because we don't know what else to say. But even so, it's nice to know that someone's praying for you. That's encouraging. But you know what's even better? To actually hear somebody praying for you. Have you ever had that experience where someone says, let's pray, and they pray for you, and you hear them talking to God about you and with you and for you? 
That experience is humbling, it's fortifying, it's deeply moving. Here's what I wanna do in today's sermon. First, I wanna show you that Jesus is praying for you. But second, I want you to hear him praying for you. And then third, we're gonna consider, what does this all mean? How do we respond to Jesus praying for us? My goal in the sermon, my hope in this sermon is that if your heart is weary today, that you would rest in a God who loves you so much that he never stops praying for you. That he's praying, hearing him pray, and how we can respond. So first, that Jesus is praying for you. There aren't that many places in the Bible that describe what Jesus is doing right now, but in all the passages that do talk about Jesus' present ministry, the thread that runs through them, he's praying for his people. And the word that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' present prayers for his church is intercession. Two passages just to set the context. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Second passage, Romans eight, verse 34. Christ Jesus who died more than that, he's not still on the cross, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, we don't use the word intercession very much outside of church circles, but the idea of intercession is actually woven through our society. If you're going to buy or rent a new place to live and you use a broker, that broker is meant to be your intercessor. If they're any good, they will be pleading your case. They will be fighting for your interest to get you into that home or that apartment. That's what a broker is supposed to, that's an intercessor. Someone who's pleading for you and fighting for your interest. And the Bible says that Jesus' present ministry, like right now what he's doing is pleading for you. But that raises a question. Some of you are thinking right now, hang on a second. When Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he said, it's finished. The work of salvation is complete. So what is Jesus doing now? What is he pleading for? If he finished the work, what's more to do? And it is true that Jesus died and he rose again. He fully accomplished the work of salvation. But your experience of salvation is very much a work in progress. You know, all the time we believe in things that we haven't actually experienced. I believe that there's a place called the Maldives. And I believe that a week-long holiday in one of those overwater bungalows would be pretty great. <laughs> but that's all it is. It's an idea. It's a belief. I've never been there. But if you've been there, you believe in it too. But your belief is different. Your belief is experienced. You remember what the morning sea breeze felt like. You remember literally walking out your door and falling into water and what it felt like on your body. You remember how sad you were when you had to leave. You believe too, but your belief is an experienced one. And for many Christians, the reality of Jesus dying and rising 
is merely a set of ideas. And what the intercession of Jesus is about is to take that truth and help it sink down into the core of your heart because saving faith is not just assenting to ideas, it's walking with and trusting and resting in a person. And so Jesus is pleading and interceding that the truth would be felt. And this gap, friends, this is why, for example, you might believe that on the cross, Jesus died to forgive your sin. You might believe that. But in the day-to-day experience of your life, you think that you don't deserve good things to happen to you because of all the bad things that you've done. Or this is why you know Jesus loves you. You know that you're accepted. But you move through life with a kind of undercurrent of anxiety about whether or not other people like you and accept you. You might believe as an idea that your future is secure. Jesus defeated death. You're on your way to heaven. But in the day-to-day of life, you keep dangerously overworking because you think that the more money you have, the safer you'll be. We have beliefs, but they're not always felt. And that's where the intercession of Jesus comes in. Our experience of his salvation is very much a work in progress. Tyler Staten put it this way, the redemption accomplished by Jesus, no matter how long and fervently I believe it, no matter how eloquently it is remembered and reimagined, it just never seems to feel finished. Jesus said it's finished, but if we're honest, it doesn't always feel that way. And so that's why right now at this moment, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is pleading for his people. This intercession of Jesus is him taking the truth of his finished work and applying it to your life precisely in the moments and in the parts of your life where you're most prone to forget it. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were at a crossroads. We had to make a decision about our future, just like you do. At a few spots in a person's life, you have those really big moments, those big decisions that you have to make. And so that's where we were. We had to decide this way or that way. And we did all the stuff that Christians are supposed to do when you come to a crossroad. We were praying. We were getting counsel from friends and mentors. We were planning and strategizing. We were doing all the things you're supposed to do. But inside and eventually outside too, I was feeling anxious, restless, and I became very irritable. Like just no fun to be around. I was living as though the decision we made about our future impacted the presence of God in my life. Now, I knew the truth of scripture. I knew that God would be with me, but I wasn't living like it. And then one day, the intercession, the prayers of Jesus broke through and God's word came to me. You see, I had been praying and saying to God, show me which way to go, tell me what to do. And God's word came to me and God says, I will be with you wherever you go. It's not about me telling you which way to go. It's about you trusting me that I'm with you wherever you go. And in that moment, I realized that's a verse from the book of Joshua that I had read hundreds of times and it was just in here in my head. 
But in that moment, because of the prayer and the intercession of Jesus, it sunk into my heart. And what followed was assurance and peace. We still had to make a decision. I still wasn't sure, but I was a little less restless. I was a little less irritable. And we could move forward. What's that? That's the present ministry of Jesus taking truth that we know and pleading on our behalf so we can feel it and live it. But all of what I've just said, as important as it is, as encouraging as it is, is just more ideas. What I wanna do now in point two of the sermon is help you hear Jesus praying for you. And that's why John 17 is our main text for today's sermon. John 17 is a glimpse of what Jesus prays for his people. It's the actual words that give us a picture of what's on his heart as he pleads on your behalf. Now, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And if we were doing a lecture and not a sermon, I would show you how this prayer that Jesus prays here actually maps onto the Lord's Prayer. You know, you've spent the last six weeks as a congregation studying the Lord's Prayer. Jesus didn't just teach his disciples this is how to pray. He actually prayed the way he taught them to pray. Fascinating. But the most wondrous part about John 17, in my opinion, is that this is Jesus praying on the very night before his death. It's hard for me to convey the force of that that here on the night before dying, God the Son is speaking to God the Father. And we have a glimpse into that conversation. Leslie Newbegin, who has a wonderful teaching on this prayer, put it this way. When a man is going on a long journey, he will find time on the eve of his departure for a quiet talk with his family. And if he is a man of God, he will end by commending to God, not only himself and his journey, but also the family whom he leaves behind. Very surely this will be so if his journey is the last journey. And that's where Jesus was. In terms of his physical bodily presence with his closest friends, Jesus is saying goodbye. He's at the end. And here at the end, what's most on his heart? When he turned to prayer at the end of the road, what is he praying about? This prayer is 26 verses long and in 20 of the verses, Jesus is praying for his people. He's revealing his deepest heart for you. So to say it differently, this prayer is as if Jesus were standing on the stage today saying, this is my heart for the church. That's what we have in this chapter. This prayer is immensely rich. I've already said, I feel totally inadequate to try to unpack these words to you. I mean, who has the words to convey the pathos of a conversation, a prayer between God the Son and God the Father. I, I don't have the words for it. Acknowledging that weakness, I just wanna show you a couple of things that Jesus prays for. You might say some of the themes of this prayer. And my hope is that we would feel this prayer over us today. As Jesus turns to prayer on the night before his death, he's praying for the same kinds of things you would pray for, for somebody that you love. He prays to his father, God, keep them safe and fill them with joy. Keep them safe and fill them with joy. Look with me, if you would, verse 15. Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
Notice Jesus is not praying that you would be spared of hardship and trouble in life. Jesus already said, in this world, you're gonna have trouble and I don't want you out of the world. Jesus must know that hardship by itself is not hazardous to spiritual health. But the greatest threat to your life is the evil one, sometimes called the devil. Now, Pastor Dave last Sunday preached a really important sermon on what this means. If you missed it, I'd encourage you, go online and have a listen. What he taught us is that the evil one or the devil is hell-bent on destroying the people of God, destroying your life with God. And the way he does that is through temptation and lying. The evil one has been lying to humanity since the Garden of Eden, and he's a very good liar. He's the father of lies. So when Jesus now on the night before his death is praying for his disciples, his friends, his people to be safe, what he's really praying for is that you would be protected from the lies of the evil one creeping into your heart and destroying your soul. So let me just give you a couple of examples from the prayer itself about how Jesus is praying for us to be kept safe. One of the lies that the devil whispers into your heart that he's been whispering into the hearts of humanity since the Garden of Eden is something like this. God's rules or his law is meant to restrict your freedom. He's been telling people that since he first told it to Adam and Eve in the garden. His intention is to make you believe that holiness or following Jesus is boring. And so Jesus prays in verse 17 of the passage, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is where we get our word holy. Here's what Jesus is basically praying for. God, as my people are being assaulted by the lie of the evil one, that you're holding out on them, keep them close to me by keeping them in your word, by keeping them close to the truth. In other words, what the evil one is trying to do is separate the love and the law of God. And Jesus is reminding us, Jesus is praying for us to know that in holiness is happiness. Or another way to say it, God's law is not the opposite of God's love, it's the manifestation of it. I have a two and a half year old and I'm learning afresh that law and love are two sides of the same coin. Because right now, as an example, my daughter is practicing stage diving off the armrest of the sofa. And so I have to lay down law. Why? She thinks I'm restricting her freedom. She thinks I'm kind of keep her down. But my love for her requires me to give commands that are for her good. One of the devil's most fantastic lies is to separate God's law from God's love. And to make you think that God is holding out on you by giving you commands to obey. And so Jesus is praying, keep them close, keep them holy through the truth. To see the beauty of holiness. To know that God's commands into your life are never restrictions on your freedom, they're the foundation for it. That's an example of one of the lies. Here's a second one that the devil whispers into our ears. You don't matter. Your life is not important. Nothing you do is gonna to amount to anything. 
Many of us feel that from time to time in our life. For some of us, that's our permanent narrative. And it's a lie. And Jesus prays as that lie comes into our hearts. Jesus prays in verse 18. He says, as you, God, have sent me into the world, so I'm sending them into the world. That word sent, it's the word mission. Do you know what Jesus, you might feel unimportant. You might feel like nothing in your life matters or is gonna amount to anything, but the son of God himself is inviting you to join him on his mission. That's how significant you are as a person made in God's image. That God wants to use you to accomplish his purposes in this city and in this world. That's truth to combat the lie. Give you one more third lie that the devil's often whispering. I mean, the evil one hates Christian community, hates it. And so he's always flinging lies in our direction to try to destroy our experience of community. And so he whispers lies like this. If someone really sees you, I mean, if they really know you, they're not gonna like you. So you need to keep your mask on. Or you don't fit, you never have, and you don't belong, you never will. So lies. Or on the other side, in attempt to destroy Christian community, he whispers lies like this. They're all hypocrites. They're all inauthentic. You can't trust any of them. Just watch the news. You can't trust any of them. And those lies are meant to destroy community. Jesus knows that. And so he prays. Come with me to verse 21. He prays, God, may all of them be one just as you are in me and I am in you. He's praying for the church to live together like a family. He's praying that we would be a community that genuinely celebrates our differences and yet has each other's backs. That our church would actually reflect the closeness of the Trinity. That's the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for us to have, a real community of belonging where you do belong and are seen and are loved. Now, those are just a few examples, but what's Jesus doing? He's pleading to God the Father, keep them safe from the lies of the evil one. And right now, that's what Jesus continues to do in heaven. And this prayer is an example of it. The second thing, though, that Jesus prays for, keep them safe and fill them with joy. Verse 13 I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus is praying for your joy. Now, there's part of me that's hesitant to preach on this because when preachers or Christians talk about joy, it's so easy for it to sound trite, cheeky almost. So stay with me. Let's ask the Spirit to combat our cynicism. Joy is really hard to define. It's really hard to define. If I had to attempt, it would be something like a soul that's fully alive. Joy sometimes sounds like laughter or looks like a smile. But most of the time, joy feels like gratitude. It, it, it feels like awe that we get to be a part of this world. Like that's, that's deep, real joy. It's a kind of soul gladness that's almost inexplicable. And what's interesting about Jesus praying for his people's joy is that he's already said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
and yet he's praying for joy. So Jesus must know that the joy he wants you to experience is one that can coexist with sorrow. And the key here, the, the key that unlocks the mystery of Christian joy is right there in verse 13, easy to miss. Jesus says, may they have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus has a very particular kind of joy. His joy is cross-shaped. I wanna read to you just a few verses from a little earlier that night, John chapter 16. Jesus says, truly I tell you, talking to these same friends that he was praying in front of, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And he illustrates, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Look with me again at verse 20. When I'm going through hard stuff, I often say something like this to God, please take this away and give me something better. And Jesus says, no, but I'll do you one better. I'm not gonna take away your sorrow and give you joy. I'm gonna turn your sorrow into joy. And in the example that he gives of childbirth, the thing that causes the pain is the thing that produces joy. And Jesus in John 16, he's not just teaching generally, he's talking about what's about to happen. The next morning, I'm gonna be led through the city in a embarrassing, shameful way. I'm gonna be crucified and you're gonna think I'm scandal. And three days later, I'll rise from the dead. And that will be the beginning of everything sad coming untrue. But you don't get to resurrection without the cross. Now, friends, hear me, and this is why I'm so hesitant. I'm not saying that every cloud has a silver lining. I'm not saying God closes doors and open windows. I'm saying that at the heart of the universe, somehow God is able to turn sorrow into joy because he did it on the cross. And what Jesus is praying for on the night before his death is that you would have his joy. A joy that's not just based on pleasant circumstances, but one that can look square in the face of suffering and say, I don't know how, but somehow God can turn this into joy because he did it on the cross. That's what Jesus is praying for. Keep them safe and let them know my joy. So how do we respond? That's what Jesus is doing for you right now. He ever lives to pray for us. How do we respond? Three invitations. First, something to realize. One of the challenges when you talk about prayer, if you preach on prayer, is that you are always left with the question like, is it working? I mean, that has a very consumeristic approach to thinking about prayer, but we have that. We, are my prayers doing anything? So even as I'm preaching this sermon, you might be thinking, I mean, I guess that's nice that Jesus is praying for me, but like, so what? Like, does it matter? Does it do anything? Like, what's the takeaway? Here's what I want us to realize. Every single 
inch of spiritual growth in your life is the result of Jesus praying for you. Every time you have an impulse towards God, it's because he's pleading on your behalf. If there's anything that I've said today that's helping you spiritually, it's not because my words are eloquent. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If you come into worship one Sunday and as the team leads us in music, a certain song breaks into the despair of your heart and fills you with hope, it's because Jesus is praying for you. If you're naturally timid and shy and yet you take that courageous step to show up to a community group, it's because Jesus is praying for you. When someone hurts you with their words and you take a moment rather than responding in kind, you did that because Jesus was praying for you. If you're able to say no to something that you really want, but you know that having it is going to numb your taste buds to the things of God, it's because Jesus is praying for you. See, every single moment of joy and hope and peace, every inch of spiritual growth in our life is because Jesus is pleading on our behalf. Maybe we're the ones who need to realize that it is working. It really is. Second invitation, not just realizing, but rest. There's an old hymn, maybe you've sung it. I'm not gonna sing it now because you don't deserve that punishment. But there's an old hymn, one of the stanzas of which says this, oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now there's truth in that. We would probably experience a whole lot more peace in our life if we prayed a lot more than we do. But think about those words again. Are they not incredibly burdensome, carry everything to God in prayer. Sometimes it's a battle just to pray about anything. And if my only hope is my ability to carry everything to God in prayer, that's not much hope. But what if in our minds we shifted the song and said, the peace that I long for, the healing that I need comes because Jesus is carrying me to God in prayer. And I learned how to rest in that. I learned how to rest in a God who is praying for me. And you know, that's actually the logic of this whole passage. This is why we began our sermon today with verse 33 of chapter 16. In verse 33 of chapter 16, Jesus says, in this world, you'll have trouble. And then in chapter 17, he starts praying. Do you see the picture? He doesn't say, guys, it's about to get really hard, so you better get prayed up. He says, it's gonna get really hard. I'm praying for you. And what if growth in prayer means learning to rest in Jesus' prayer for us? F.D. Bruner puts it this way, we Christians are being prayed for by a person very good at prayer. We are not on our own, so may we relax a bit and come to Jesus' party. Third, realize, rest, and third, surrender. Scary as it is, the most restful thing that you can do is surrender your life, your dreams, your hopes, your fears, everything to Jesus. I recently invited our church in London to pray the shortest, scariest, and most liberating prayer you might ever pray. Not my will, but yours be done. 
Maybe for you today, part of resting in Jesus' prayer is surrendering your life to him, letting go of the need for control and for certainty and saying to God, not my will, yours be done. And where can you get the confidence you need to pray that kind of prayer? Because John 17 wasn't the only prayer Jesus prayed the night before his death. But a little bit later that evening, he was not standing, but kneeling in the garden. And Jesus looked to heaven and said to God, his father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Humanly speaking, Jesus didn't want to endure the crucifixion. But then he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, the maker of every star in the sky, surrendered himself to death on the cross. You can surrender your life to him because he surrendered his to you. Cry out to him, pray to him, and rest in the one who ever lives to pray for you. Let's pray. Our God, even now as we come to this time of response, help us to realize, help us to rest, and help us to surrender to you, a savior and a king, whoever lives to plead and pray for his people. We thank you for this. We pray in Jesus' name.